good to, to be here, to be together, to be with, uh, with God's people. And, um, and, you know, as a pastor, uh, one of the things I get to do uh, is, is weddings. Uh, weddings are a lot of fun, right? Uh, and really, whatever, whatever position you have in the wedding, whether it's the pastor, whether, of course, whether you're the bride or the groom, or whether you're just, you know, there for the, there for the food, uh, wedding, weddings are a lot of fun. And, and, and so at getting, you know, to, to do the wedding, do the ceremony, I, I love every, every part of the kind of the, the traditional wedding service, even some of the non-traditional elements people throw in there. Um, so don't take what I'm about to say as saying I don't like this. But there's one part of the ceremony that I've always thought was really cheesy. Uh, and it's the, it's the part with the rings. I, I, I know, yeah, don't, don't, don't get mad at me. I, I love it. But the part with the rings, the exchange of rings, because you know what, you know, the, the sort of the, the traditional thing of what you say is, you know, you, you, you take the rings and... Um, and I think, I think at this point we're just searching for some symbolism here. And we're saying, you know, so we do these rings because they're precious metal because marriage is a precious thing. And, and it's a circle because it goes on forever. <laughs> Which, okay, is, is true. I've always thought it was kind of cheesy. If you want to get married, you want me to do it, I'm, I'm happy to do it for you. I'm happy to do the, 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 the rings thing. Did it for me. It was, it was memorable. And when I got married... Um, especially because my, my wife was trying to put it on the wrong hand and it wouldn't, it wouldn't fit. But, uh. <laughs> but as cheesy as it is, it's true. What the, what the pastor says there in that little moment about marriage is true. That it is a precious and holy thing. And that it is God's design for it, that it would be a lifelong union. So whatever way you want to come up with in your, in your wedding ceremony to express that, go, go for it. But today, so today, you know, so we're in, if you're visiting with us, we're in, we're in 1 Corinthians. This, this kind of whole year, really, we're sort of camped out in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, moving through it. And we're in chapter 7 today. And today, really, we're looking at what the Apostle Paul talks about with God's design for marriage. God's design for marriage. And, and now, if, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, uh, we've actually been doing something a little different with this chapter. We've kind of taken this chapter out of order uh, because, uh, because what, what is happening now as we arrive in chapter 7 is that Paul is actually starting to, uh, to answer some of the questions that the Corinthian Christians had. It's like they had written him a letter at some point. And, with some practical and doctrinal questions. And so he's starting to answer them. And in chapter 7, he, he takes a, a couple of their questions. And so he, they, they kind of have a question about like sex and sexuality. They have a question about marriage and singleness. And Paul, the way Paul answers these in chapter 7 is he kind of has this main big, this big idea that that God's that we're submitting to God that we should submit to God's purposes for ourselves live the life that we're called to live and he applies that to marriage and he applies it to singleness and so we sort of took this chapter out of order if you've been tracking with us the last couple of weeks a couple of weeks ago pastor don took kind of right in the middle of chapter 7 Paul's big idea that thesis that we're supposed to that God calls us to submitting to his kind providence to live the life that he's called us to. 
And then we saw, moved ahead in chapter 7 to see how Paul applied that to the, to the question of singleness. Um, Pastor um, Greg brought that message. And so now we're going back to the beginning of the letter to see how Paul addresses the issue of marriage. But it's all sort of tied together, and that's why we, we started with the big idea to kind of get some, some themes going here. But if you have a Bible, go, go ahead and, and open up to 1 Corinthians 7. You can pull it up on your phone. We're going to put it up here on the screen as well. But, um, and so we're going to see two things here. If you're a kind of an outline, note, note-taking kind of person, uh, the two, two things that we're going to see in this text that, that we look at is, uh, is that we're going to see God's purposes for sex and sexuality and we're going to see the permanence of marriage. Purposes of sexuality, the permanence of marriage. And so, so as we come now to the text, you know, what, what I want to do now, before we just jump in and dive in, dive in and read, uh, I'd like to take a moment and pray. Uh, and the reason is, is because we, we believe that this book, that this, that this letter, this ancient letter to this church, these Christians long ago, that this is actually God's inspired perfect word for us. And we believe that he speaks today through this. And so I just want to ask him for his help. So let's, let's pray. God, I, th- I thank you for your word. I thank you that, uh, that you are so good to us. As we sang, that you are full of grace and steadfast love. And just one of the ways we see that is that you have spoken to us. And that you have you've given us instructions on life, on your purposes, your desire for how we are to live. And so, Lord, help us as we look at this text to see your good purposes for us, to see your kind providence, um, and to see the grace, Lord, that is greater than all of our sin. So help me to speak and help all of us to listen and hear what you have to say to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Paul says, Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. So, so remember I said he's, he's responding to, to their questions now. So he's going to quote, I guess, a line from their letter. It, it, it's sort of a bummer that we, don't have, that we don't have the Corinthians letter to Paul. All we have is Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Uh, I'd like to know what all their questions were, what, what they said, because this is a messed up church. That would have been a really interesting letter to read. But it says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote and quotes their letter, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so, let me pause here. See, what was, what was happening is the, the Corinthians are asking him some questions about how do we live now? Because we've, we've believed in Jesus, we've, been brought, you know, we've trusted in this, in this gospel that has saved us, we're part of this new community, but all around us, it's still Corinth. It's still, like, they're now living in this pagan this pagan city, these former pagans in this pagan city with different, a whole different set of ethics. And now the, the, this, the gospel's transforming them, but they're still wrestling with, okay, how, how do we live this out? And so one of their ideas, I guess, uh, it, it appears, that is that, okay, in this sexually promiscuous world, and we saw back at the beginning of the letter that Corinth is really similar in a lot of ways to, to America uh, in, in just its, its own cultural values. And so they, they find themselves in this sexually prom- promiscuous and permissive culture. 
And so they say, well, is the way that we should handle, follow Jesus now is just like 100% abstinence, that sex, sexuality just belongs to our pagan past, and now, and now we, we're all going to be like monks and nuns. Is that, is that what Jesus wants us to do? That's, that's what's in their question here. And it, when they, Paul quotes their letter, it, they, and they say, it, it's, it's good to, to not do that, to just be a monk. And here's how Paul answers their, their question. Paul says, ah, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come, again, to come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul, in answer to their question, basically is like, no, get married. In asking, should we all, does, does following Jesus mean being, being a monk or a nun? And he said, no, get, get married. Which is really interesting, especially in light of, of what we've seen. One of the reasons we took this out of order is so that we could see the whole context at once. Remember uh, Pastor Greg's message on singleness. What, what Paul says later, what we're going to see here actually in just a minute, is Paul's like, hey, you know, singleness is better. Like, be fully undivided, undivided devotion to Jesus. Go for that. Run with that. But here he's like, hey, man, just get married. It's fine. <laughs> it's all part of this, what, uh, what we saw when Pastor Don preached, of just let each, verse 17, let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned him. It's, we don't, per, perhaps, maybe one takeaway of, of these couple messages on marriage and singleness is I think that one of, one of the things that we as sort of individualist kind of people do is we try really, really hard to figure out our life plan, right? That I, I want to know exactly what, what to do here, like how to be, you know, am I going to be single? Am I going to be married? Like I, I got my plan, I got my dream, I want to achieve that dream. And Paul is just sort of tapping the brakes on that in this chapter. And he's just saying, one of the marks of following Jesus, he says, it's not about being single. It's not about being married. It's about a meek trust in the good providence of God, that he's kind to me and he will give grace to me, whether that's in singleness, whether that's in marriage. And so that's why, like, you, if you just sit down and read the whole chapter, you'll get to the end of the chapter and you'll kind of be like, well, Paul, what is it? Should I, get sing should I be single or should I get married? And Paul's like, nah. Live the life that God has assigned you. <laughs> and so you don't get, you know, Paul, it, it feels like he's going back and forth, but it's not. He keeps, it's that central thesis of God is good to you, Christian, and you can trust him. And if that singleness, says, I'm, God says, I'm going to provide for that, for whether that's your whole life, whether that's a season. And he says, in marriage, marriage is good too. It's good stuff here. Go ahead and get married. Now, the, the question in particular that he's, at, that, that he's answering is 
is about sex and sexuality and how the Corinthian Christians, how us American Christians should navigate this. And his answer basically of just, hey, hey go ahead and get married, that, that's fine. What one thing Paul is doing here is he is exposing, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding about what God's purposes in our sex, sexuality and our desires are. Because the Corinthians are actually coming at this question from the wrong way. Just their, their idea of full abstinence, just put it down, be devoted to Jesus, they're actually coming at this question from the wrong way. And, and ironically, we're going to see, is they're coming at the question the same direction, actually, as the, Corinth, as the, the Corinthian culture. And both of these extremes of permissiveness and asceticism have the same misunderstanding in mind. It's that, that sex is about self-gratification. This is the fundamental error that the, that the Corinthian culture had, that the Corinthian church had, and that as Americans and American Christians we struggle with this same fundamental misunderstanding too, that sex is about self-gratification. Because, you know, the Corinthian culture and our American culture says, hey, you know, live it up. Party, indulge, find your true self here. And the Corinthians wondered, and sometimes we, we American Christians wondered, should we just is the response to that to completely put aside all kinds of desires as well. Because self-gratification is bad, right? And Paul's answer to them by framing this as a marriage question is just like, hey, Corinthians, hey, Americans, you have gotten this fundamentally backwards. Because sex is not self-gratification it is about mutual self-giving love. Sex is not self-gratification, but mutual self-giving love. This is why he frames it as a marriage, as a marriage issue, because, because God's design for this, as we're going to see, is that this sort of commitment to lifelong mutual self-giving love is this what God has invented marriage for. And what he tells them is he says, in marriage, in marriage, you are no longer your own. You don't belong to yourself anymore, spouse. Your marriage and the role that sexuality has within marriage is not about self-gratification. It's not about self-actualization. It's not even fundamentally about someone who will who you find who completes you and makes you feel happy, right? Isn't that that's the way we talk about marriage, right? I'm going to find the one who completes me. Paul's like, scrap that. That's not what it's for. It's not, it's not for self-gratification. It's not for self-actualization. It's for mutual self-giving love. It's not I... I want someone to complete me. It's I want to give myself away. And that's how he frames this. He says, he says here in chapter, se in chapter 7, in, in verse, uh, verse 3 and 4 and 5, he says, Husbands and wives, give 
of yourselves, of your bodies to one another. Give. Not take, not get, give. give. And, and it's interesting that he frames it this way. And he says, he says, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body. The husband doesn't have authority over his own body. You are not your own anymore. It really, in some ways, it echoes what he just had said in chapter 6. In chapter 6, when he's talking about when he's talking about sexual immorality in the body, and he says, you don't belong to yourself anymore, Christian. You belong to another. You were bought at a price. You belong to Jesus. He has authority over your body. You were, you, you're bought by him. And it's almost that, that same picture is kind of now applied to marriage. It's like, when you entered into that marriage covenant, you don't belong to yourself anymore. So just as my body is the Lord's, I belong to him. I'm not my own now. My body is my wife's. I belong to her. I am not my own. And this is worked out in marriage. And he says, he says, the wife doesn't belong to herself. She belongs to her husband. And the husband doesn't belong to himself. He belongs to, her, to his wife. And so he says, don't deprive one another. Give to one another. And you know, that, we could talk about that for a while. We've got a lot of more text to cover here, so I'm not going to, but that is a, that is a balance, a, a delicate dance. Self-giving love in a marriage is a, an equilibrium, a delicate dance, self-giving grace, in which the husband and the wife are both laying down their rights and pursuing the good of the other. Because you might say, well, how exactly does that work? Because if I want something and my wife doesn't want something, then, like, okay, so obviously my job is now I lay down my desires for the good of my wife. But then my wife is like, well, my job is to lay down my desires for the good of my husband. What do we do? I don't know. <laughs> Figure it out. <laughs> your, your husband and wife. This is, it's the delicate dance. It's this, this equilibrium of grace. <laughs> and I know that that might seem like kind of a cop-out answer, and, and, and maybe it is, but I'm just going to pass that one off to the Holy Spirit to, to work in you and in your marriage to say what in... Because, you know, this, of course, this isn't just about sex. This is about, like, what do you want for dinner tonight? <laughs> like, this is, this is everything. This is one of the reasons God has designed marriage, like, invented marriage is to put two people together so that you have to learn how to die to yourself every day for the rest of your life. From what do I want for dinner to what should we do with the kids to what, what does our sex life look like? It is self-giving and it's practice <laughs> this is why it take this is why it's why it's a lifelong thing it takes your whole, whole life to figure this out and this is why we need god's grace and his spirit speaking into our marriages to learn how, what does that equilibrium moment to moment day by day decision by decision what does it look like for husband and wife to lay down their rights and pursue the good of the other and so we, we would like to get more into the practicalities of this a little bit, um, but for, part of, for, for sake of time, one of the things that we want to do, really in tackling this whole chapter, is uh, we're going to schedule some sort of special 
grace at the table episodes. You know, if you've been around, we've talked about this, that each month we do this thing called grace at the table, where it's sort of, you know, a live video podcast kind of thing that you can, that, that usually happens after church on Sundays that you can stick around for, you can watch online, you can text in your questions. And the, the point of these grace at the table times has really been to have you know, a couple pastors up here. Lisa Sharp is sort of our moderator. And we have these conversations about how do we apply God's word in these cultural questions, in these practical questions, in difficult areas, how do we navigate these things? And so, you know, so we've, we've talked about all different kinds of topics. We're trying to intentionally kind of pick some ones that maybe don't get talked about as often. And so with, here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with sex and marriage and singleness. And there, so there's a whole lot of practical how do I navigate this kind of question. So we'd like to do a couple, uh, several of these grace at the table ones. We're going to have some kind of bonus episodes here. Um, originally t- today, we were going to have one after the service today. We were advertising that. And so if you're eager for the singleness and sexuality one, I'm sorry we're moving that. Um, uh, my wife and I have experienced a death in our family, um, and I, actually, I have places I have to be after the service. So we're, we're rescheduling this a little bit. So jot these dates down, because I think all of these discussions are, not, are ones that you don't want to miss. Um, next week, next Sunday, uh, after the service, we're doing a Grace at the Table panel on marriage and divorce. Some of the, the, the questions that are going to arise about divorce later in this passage we're going to dig into those. And so even if after this message you have questions, next, next week's panel, text them in, um, join us for that. The following week, August 1st, uh, we're going to have a Grace the Table panel on singleness and sexuality. How as a single person, what is God's, what is God's design for me in this area of my life as a single person? Then August 15th, I'm going to skip August 8th. August 15th, we're going to kind of ask that same question about marriage. Married people, marriage and sexuality. What is God's design for for this part of my life in my marriage? So we're going to, you know, text in your questions then. We're going to have a fun discussion August 15th. And then later in August, not quite sure of the date yet, we're going to have another Grace at the Table panel, a little bit different, but we're going to have several of our, um, several single people that we're asking to join the panel to talk about the experience of singleness, of how do I, like, how in my life have I walked this, this out? How, how do you pursue undivided devotion to Christ? What are the, some of the struggles that I've had in the church with these kinds of things? Uh, so that's going to be another one. So those four, those four panels, um, marriage and divorce, singleness and sexuality, marriage and sexuality, and the experience of sexuality, all coming up in the next month, are ways of just context that we want to give more practical help here. So I hope that you, you'll join us, join us for those. And so, so this is how Paul just turns our whole, the whole question on its head. That sex is not self-gratification. It's self-giving love, and it's the physical expression of what marriage is all about, a commitment to the good of another. Now, as we keep reading, verse 6, Paul says, now, he says, now, as a concession, 
and not a command, I say this. Because when he says, go ahead and get married, he's like, he's like hold on, that, that's not like a thou shalt kind of thing. Thou shalt get married. He says, I'm making this as a concession. Verse 7, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul was single. He says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And we, and, and we saw how, uh, how Pastor Greg talked about that. Paul's gonna, Paul picks that back up. And so if you missed that message, go back two weeks, uh, listen to that, that message on singleness. And so then he sort of summarizes here. He says, verse, in verse 8, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it's good for them to remain single as I am. We sort of saw that, see this later in the chapter. Paul's like, hey, marriage, that's great. You know what's even better? Singleness. <laughs> that would be a, a, a fun little message to preach at a wedding. I think I should do that next <laughs> next. <one. laughs> but, but verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should get married. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. He says this is, this is God's... One of God's purposes for marriage is that, is that, this, is that he, as sexual beings, that he's created us as sexual, physical, embodied beings. He's like, this is what it's for over here. Now, in verse 10, it seems like, he, seems like he's going to shift gears here because now he's going to start talking about divorce all of a sudden. So you might say, what, what does that have to do with the Corinthians question? Because uh, he, he, says, he says in verse 10, he says to the married, I give this charge. You know, the wife should not separate from her husband. Husband should not sep- divorce his wife. So, and, and so you might say, that, that seems to come out of left field here. Why, why is that when the, when the Corinthians asked about, about sex and abstinence? I think, I think it's this. I think he has, in the way he answers the question, their question, has marriage on his mind? Because if the purpose of sexuality is self-giving love and a unending commitment to the good of another, that by definition has to have a context, an unending commitment to the good of another, a commitment to say, I will give myself to you, that has a context. And Paul knows, and Paul has explained, has expressed, the whole Bible is clear, the context of that is marriage. That's what God has made marriage for, to be an unending, lifelong commitment to the good of another. And so if that, if, if sex and sexuality is part of that, is, is that really the physical expression of that, then that means sex and sexuality has to be worked out in that context of an unending, lifelong commitment, a lifelong covenant. And so Paul's logic here flows from talking about the, per- the, the purpose of sex and flows right into the permanence of marriage. Those two are linked because it's all about an unending commitment to the good of another person. And so he says to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband." But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, a, you might wonder about the parentheses there. Super important that we understand what's going on in the parentheses here and later, later we'll see in verse 12. When Paul says, 
this isn't me saying this, this is the Lord. He says, you know, I give this, I get this charge, not I, but the Lord. What he's not doing, he's not adding an extra layer of authority and emphasis of like, hey, listen up, this is thus saith the Lord, so you better do this. That's not what he's doing here. Because as an apostle, as an inspired spokesperson, he speaks with the authority of the Lord. There's no extra authority to add here. So he's he's not adding some extra layer of authority. What he simply means, he actually means something pretty simple here. He says, hey, Jesus talked about this. That, that's, just, that's what he means here. When he says, he says, I'm not saying this, the Lord is saying this. He's saying, remember, Jesus taught about this. And he, he's just going to echo exactly what Jesus said about this. And so let, let's go to what Jesus said about this. So, so we, can, we can understand what Paul says about marriage and divorce. Because he's referencing Matthew 19. There's a couple of places where, where Jesus speaks about divorce, but let's go look, look, look at Matthew 19. This is what the Lord said that Paul is just sort of quoting here. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Because at, at, at this time in the first century, there was sort of a, a, an intramural debate in Judaism about how to apply the law here. Some people said, oh yeah, just divorce for any reason. Um, one prominent teacher of the law said, if your wife, if you, if you don't like your wife's breakfast, dump her. <laughs> and the, Fer- the Pharisees were like, no. <laughs> and so, so the Pharisees are, are basically trying to pin him down on a hot button issue. And so Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so they said to him, well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're referring back to the, back to the law that that God had made some provisions for divorce. And so they're like, well, Moses talks about divorce, therefore that, that's, it's legal, right? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Which is really just what Paul was quoting back in 1 Corinthians 7. See, Jesus answers the question, their question about divorce, by pointing to God's original design for sexuality in the context of marriage. This again, this is, this is why Paul's just following this logic. So, so um, that's why Paul moves from the question of sex to marriage, because that's, that's how Jesus answers this question. And so as we look at what Jesus says, how Jesus unpacks God's purposes here, there are two questions come to mind. I mean, maybe you have more questions, but I, there's two questions I kind of like to ask of Jesus in the text here that I think will give us some clarity as to how, how we navigate these things. The two questions that I'd like to ask of Jesus in this text is, why is it that it's sexual immorality that makes divorce permissible, Jesus. Why that, why that one? 
And two, Jesus, why do you say that remarriage after an impermissible divorce means adultery? So I think if, if we can see an answer to those two questions, I think that that's actually going to give us some really helpful clarity to navigate this issue. Because, because really, is there, any more, is there any more topic and reality that is so fraught and so complicated as this one? in like the practicalities of working out marriage and divorce. Like nothing is more complicated really than, than this one. And so getting some clarity on, let's probe Jesus' answer here, ask these two questions. It's going to give us some, some clarity. So the, the first question, why, why is it sexual immorality? Of all of the sins, you know, pick any of the Ten Commandments, Jesus. Why is it this one that you say this is a, this is a permissible reason for the the breaking and disillusion of a marriage. And it's because, you see, what Jesus says is that because this one flesh union that he describes, that that is integral to what marriage is. The, the one flesh sexual union that, you know, Jesus quotes Genesis 2 here. He says, you know, man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, they'll become one flesh. That's Genesis 2. That's before the fall. That's the creation of human beings. This is God inventing marriage before there was ever any sin for us to deal with in those relationships. God invented marriage and invented this one flesh sexual union. And that one flesh union is designed for marriage. But, here's maybe a helpful, a, a good nuance here. That one flesh union, while it's designed for marriage, it isn't the same thing as marriage. Here, here, here's what I mean. Um, because I, I, have, I have heard this said before. That if you, you know, it's premarital sex or whatever, you sleep with somebody well, you're now married in the eyes of the Lord. Is that accurate? My answer is no. Um, and, I, and I can give you verse, chapter and verse why. In 1 Corinthians 6, just right before Paul's whole discussion here, when he's talking about, when, uh, he's talking about sexual immorality, he says, he says you, know, you're, you know, you belong to Jesus now, Shall I then take the take? You know, I'm I'm part of Christ's body. Shall I take Christ's body and make it make him members of a prostitute? I'm just giving an example of sexual morality. He says, "Never." Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So he says, "There, there is this one flesh sexual union." And he says, "Don't do that with a prostitute." Now, if you do that with a prostitute, is she is she now your wife? Are you now suddenly married to the prostitute in the eyes of the Lord? No. No. So it's not like whoever you sleep with becomes your spouse. He's saying, no, this, this one flesh union is designed for marriage, so don't go do it with someone, with someone else. It's an integral part of marriage, but it is not the whole thing. So I, I, was, I, was, trying to think, I, was, I was trying to think of a, an illustration here. Work with me here. I hope this works. I found this in one of the closets upstairs. <laughs> this is it's some sort of like, you know, thing, stand. Um, 
this has a lot of different components to it. And they come together to make one nice whole that, that has a purpose, has a design, has a function, you know, to put, like, you know, to display things. What marriage is, is marriage is the putting, putting together of two different lives to make a whole. You know, Jesus, Jesus says, this is the verse quoted at, quoted at weddings all the time, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I love that verse. It's what God has joined together. That God is actually doing something in the marriage. That he is taking two, two people and putting them together to create a whole. Now, sex is part of that. Let's say of this, this contraption here. Let's say that this, that this thing here on the bottom. Let's say this is the one flesh sexual union. It even kind of works. That's what's holding this, that, <laughs> uniting these things together. This is a part of the whole. It is what, ma- what makes this work. Wouldn't work without this. But it's not the whole thing. You can even think about this in a wedding ceremony. At what moment are you married? Is it when the pastor says, I now pronounce you husband and wife? Or is it the wedding night honeymoon? When did you become married? The reality is, is, is marriage is not something that you put together that night. It's something God puts together. And it's the pastor declaring over you, declaring what God is doing, what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. I declare, I announce, I pronounce you husband and wife. Now you may kiss the bride and kids go have fun tonight. That, that's what, so, mar- so this part of marriage is not what makes it a marriage. However, this has a really integral purpose. And the reason that Jesus says is taking this off and going and doing something else with it breaks the marriage. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to break this now. Sorry, Becky. <laughs> I, got that, I got this out of, out of her closet. So if you break this, And if I had practiced this with one of Becky's other display things, I might have found out that it doesn't actually snap off like I thought it would. <laughs> but if you break this thing, and you take this off, and you go try to stick it on somewhere else, first of all, that is not what this is for. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that he says, don't go and do that with like a prostitute or whoever else, because that's not what it's for. It's for this. It's for here. However, if you do that, if God has joined together this marriage, put this together, and then you rip this off and go put it somewhere else, this thing is now broken. It's broken, and Jesus is saying it's broken in such a way that that it's permissible to, to toss this. Now, Another important clarification here. Jesus says divorce in in the case of sexual immorality is permissible. It's not required. Because, well, I'm not going to be able to, but God can put things back together again. 
God is, in fact, able to heal even that. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to. Not without some pliers. Becky, I'll I'll work on this (laughs) before I give it back to you. And some of you here, some of you here are miracles of grace in, in this way. Because your testimony for some of you is that you broke your marriage or your spouse broke your marriage and God healed it and God restored it. God put it back together again. And and that is a miracle of grace. But you know, for some others of you, some others of you, your, your testimony is that you broke your marriage or God, or that your spouse broke your marriage and God didn't heal the marriage. He healed you. And he restored you. And that's a miracle of grace too. Both are grace. Because Jesus says in this, in this situation, in this situation, this is, this is permissible to take this apart. Because it's broken now. And God's heart is always for restoration. He should always pursue restoration but sometimes, sometimes it's broken, and, God's, and God says, let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned him. God says, I'm going to heal you. And that's still grace. So that, that's the kind of the first question I'm asking of Jesus here. Is the, why sexual morality? It's because this is it. the one flesh union is an integral part of the, merit, of the marriage unity. The second question, this also requires some nuance. Why is remarriage after an impermissible divorce adultery? Jesus says, he says, whoever divorces his wife, and Paul says it goes the other way around too for husbands, for wives. Whoever divorces a wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So why is that? Why is that adultery? Because here's, here's something else that I've heard a lot. You say, uh, well, an unbiblical divorce, an impermissible, if, in the case of an impermissible divorce, you're still married in the eyes of the Lord. Heard that too. But here's the thing. That's not how the Bible talks about divorce. The Bible talks about divorce, even even impermissible divorce, as real divorce. Divorce is divorce. Even if you weren't supposed to, if you disassemble this, it really is now broken. Like, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7, this is just how the Bible talks about this. 1 Corinthians 7 says in in that situation of an of an impermissible, biblically impermissible divorce, says to you have two options. Stay unmarried or be reconciled. 
Stay un, you're now unmarried. You're no longer married in the eyes of the Lord. You are unmarried now, even if it was an unbiblical divorce. The marriage really was dissolved. So the question is, Jesus, why is it still adultery then? Right? This is the, that, when you see actually how the Bible talks about divorce, Jesus' statement becomes puzzling. Why is it, why is it adultery then? And I, I think, and the commentaries suggest this, and as pastors, we actually, we, we spent a couple, couple months studying out this, this issue, um, this issue of marriage and divorce, and, and looking to try to understand some of these things. Uh, and, and what we think is this. Why, why does Jesus call this adultery? It's because if you divorce your spouse for impermissible reasons... While the marriage has been dissolved, and 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, you are unmarried now, you are still under divine obligation to reconcile with your spouse. God, God the, the one flesh union, the union of marriage has been dissolved, but God has not released you from that responsibility. You are still under obligation to pursue reconciliation with with your spouse. That's why, that's why Paul gives the two options. Is stay unmarried or pursue reconciliation. So you are... And this is... Some of you might be in a situation where this is a hard word. Where God's will for your life and God's purposes in the midst of what has been broken may be hard. And if it's landing on you as hard, can you... First of all, don't, don't just toss Jesus out and walk out. Please don't do that. Jesus is so good. He wants to meet you where you are in whatever, whatever mess. He wants to meet you there. And then please come and talk to one of us pastors. We want to help walk you through what, what is God calling you to do here. But the reality is what Jesus says here, Jesus as, as Lord, as creator, as the one who has designed this, says if you divorce for impermissible reasons, you are under obligation to reconcile with your spouse. You're under obligation to rebuild what has been broken, to, to, to put that one flesh union back together. Now, that part is clear from what Jesus says. It also means, so hear this too, it also means that if it is a biblically permissible divorce, then it is not adultery to remarry. That's another just important clarification here. Jesus says it, it's, if this, then it's adultery. But if it's not, then it's not adultery. Then you are, then go get remarried. Then, then what Paul says here about, he's, about hey, Stay single, that's great, but sure, get married, then that applies to you again. And so these, these clarifications, I think, help, help us navigate a little bit of what Jesus is saying and, and a little bit of what he's not saying. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians, because remember, all of this was Paul saying, I, I didn't say this, this is what Jesus said. But let's keep reading, because 
Because because we're not actually done. That's, that's, not the, that's not the sum total of the Bible's teaching on divorce. Because Paul actually, what he's going to do now in verse 12 is bring up another scenario. Because there, there's actually another scenario here. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12. Paul says, now to the rest. It's like, anyone who that didn't apply to. He says, I say, and in parentheses he says, I, not the Lord... He says, now this other scenario, if a brother has, that's a, you know, a believer has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he shouldn't divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But then he goes on and you know, kind of walks us out a little bit and he says, but if he leaves, let, 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 him, let him go. So remember I said to understand this parentheses, what Paul means by the parentheses is really important. When Paul writes, the Lord is saying, it's not me. Remember, he's not claiming an extra layer of authority. He's just saying, look, remember what Jesus talked about. And now when, when Paul writes here, when he says, I'm saying this, not the Lord, he doesn't mean I'm pressing pause on the whole inspiration of the Bible thing. I don't have no idea. Jesus, you know, I'm not Jesus. Don't, you know, don't quote me on this. He's, he's not saying that. He's not saying that you can just sort of you know, cut this verse out of your Bible, that, 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 that this isn't God's word. All he's saying is, just like in verse 10, all that he was saying is, hey, remember, Jesus talked about this. All he's saying now is, hey, Jesus didn't talk about this. That, that, that's what he's saying. He's saying this, this is a scenario that Jesus was not addressing. And that doesn't mean it's less authoritative. That doesn't mean like, you know, it's only the, only the red letters are really important and you can throw the rest out. Because this, this entire book was inspired. It's breathed out by God through human authors. It means in one sense the whole book is red letters. But Paul is saying... There is a scenario here which Jesus was not addressing back in, back in Matthew 19. Marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. And Paul says that's not what Jesus was talking about. Which is really interesting because on first glance, if you read what Jesus says, you might say, Paul, where are you getting that? Like that seems like sort, sort of a, you know, Pulling, you know, pulling that little loophole out of, out of thin air. Why, why do you get that, Paul? But Paul actually does get it from somewhere. And th this, this highlights a super, super important clarification on Jesus' teaching that I want to show you back in what Jesus says. That Jesus' prohibition on divorce except for sexual immorality only applies to believers. Jesus' prohibition on divorce except for sexual immorality only applies to believers. Because you know, uh, both Matthew and Mark record the same story of Jesus talking to the Pharisees about divorce. Mark includes one little detail that Paul notices. Mark includes this detail. And then on the next slide here, you know, so same story. The Pharisees, you know, they come up to test him. They say, can, you know, what do you think about divorce, Jesus? Jesus gives that answer about God's purposes in creation, male and female, what God has joined together. 
And it turns out, this is the detail Mark adds. So it's not that Matthew's wrong. It's just that these are complementary accounts. Mark adds this detail, that that was the end of Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. End of story. And later, in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And Jesus said to his disciples... Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if he divorces her, it's Jesus said that not to the Pharisees. Jesus didn't say that part to the Pharisees or to the crowd. He only tells his disciples that. To the Pharisees, he just reminds them of God's creation purposes. But his, to his disciples, he's saying, This is the standard to which you are now being held to and following me. It's like Jesus is saying, okay, I told the the Pharisees about God's purposes in creation. And Jesus is like, now I'm here to accomplish that. I'm here to put right what sin has put wrong. I'm launching a new creation. I am restoring God's purposes in this world. And so if you're with me, you're held at that standard. Jesus' teaching here only applies to his followers. And Paul, so Paul here in verse, going back to 1 Corinthians here, in verse 12 when Paul says Jesus was not talking about this, this is a new scenario, Paul isn't just pulling some loophole out of thin air. Paul is being so careful with Jesus' words. Paul's being so precise in his exegesis that Paul is like, hey, this is not what Jesus was talking about here. Look at his audience. Look at, his, look at the context. Paul is being so precise. And you know, so just as, as an aside here, um, I, I am really impressed. Even just looking at this text this week again, I, I'm so impressed. I'm so thankful for Paul's careful nuance. See, because Paul and all of the other biblical authors, like this is just a little parenthesis here, but they handle God's word with such care, with such precision. Whether they're quoting the Old Testament, whether they're quoting Jesus, they are not clumsy expositors. They, they are with such care and reverence down to the details, being like, let's get this right. Which is unlike us, who we so often, I mean, let, let's be honest here, so often we wield Bible verses as clumsy proof texts. We pluck them out of context. We're waving them, waving around. We swing, them, we swing these out of context proof texts around like, bowls in a china shop. You know, and, and in doing so, and in doing so, we are so unlike Paul because we miss the nuance of Jesus' teaching. We miss his audience. We miss his heart. We apply these proof texts in, in unhelpful and unkind and untrue ways. We put burdens on people that Jesus didn't intend. We try to legislate Jesus' morality for unbelievers. Like we get this wrong. We're just not as careful with God's word as Paul is. And so I, I'm just so impressed by Paul's precise handling of Jesus' words here. So that, that's just kind of close parentheses. 
Because, now, because Paul now in 1 Corinthians, he's addressing this issue that Jesus did not talk about. Because Jesus is talking to his disciples in Mark, his, his disciples in Mark 10, but now, now the gospel's spreading. That new creation is on the loose. People are getting saved. It's working its way through the world. And as the gospel collides with pagan culture, it just raises this obvious practical implication. Like one spouse gets saved and another doesn't. What happens then? How should that work? And so the new dimension that Paul adds on here, as, as the Lord's authoritative spokesperson in addressing this new scenario, Paul adds this. He says, if a believer finds themselves married to an unbeliever and has to choose between their spouse and Jesus, choose Jesus. Because th- this scenario that Paul is addressing, is, is it, maybe it's something that the Corinthians raised in their letter, but it's pro- it was Either way, it's probably common. It was common. It probably it still is common. One spouse gets saved. And now she's got this whole new value system, this whole new allegiance, a whole new community, all these strange new beliefs. And so this, this other Corinthian spouse is like, I want out. She won't, she won't burn incense to Caesar. She won't pledge allegiance to Rome. She won't participate in my, in, in my idolatry. She's hanging out with these weird people. So, so wife, either you ditch Jesus or I'm out of here. And so Paul says, choose Jesus. Choose Jesus. Here, let's, let's look at the, at the rest of the text here. So verse 12, he says, this, this scenario, verse 12 and 13, of, of a, a husband or wife with an unbelieving spouse. It says, if, he, if they consent to live together, great. Don't divorce them. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. We'll come back to what does that mean. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? In other words, if you can stay, stay. Great. But if you can't, Paul's like, you you were called to peace. And in fact, you were called to a higher calling than this marriage. So this is Paul adding another dimension to what Jesus said. Jesus saying to his, his followers, to the church, to his people, he's saying this is a lifelong covenant because you, you are God's new creation in this world. So you're back to God's original created purposes and design. You, you don't break this. And Paul says now, but if in the course of things you find yourself that you're married to a, a, an unbeliever, he's like, this is different, this is complicated. And so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, as pastors, um, you know, and as a church, we have, we have as a church this um, divorce and remarriage position statement. Uh, if you've been through membership class, even if it was like a thousand years ago, you, you got this. This is one of the papers we handed to you. 
Uh, I'm, I'm sure that you keep this and the church constitution on your bedside table for, you know, some light devotional reading. Uh, but but um, kind of our position of how we understand marriage and, and divorce. And as pastors, we were looking at this this year, and, and a concern that we had in looking at the statement as it was written is that, is that we were concerned that we were not actually applying and exegeting God's word with the same precision that Paul was in our statement. And so we wanted to study the issue out. This is, this is something that, that we do as pastors. At, at any given point, there's, there's some issue usually that we are studying, that we're digging into, that we're, that we're reading and discussing, because as your pastors, we are really committed to doctrinal and practical faithfulness. And so sometimes that means asking, like, do we have this right? And so we were concerned that our, that our statement, our position on divorce and remarriage did not adequately reflect the Bible's nuances, even some of these nuances in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, and so we, we studied this issue out. We read a couple solid theological books on this. We, taught, we, we talked about this. And we have actually revised this didn't like completely rewrite it. It's relatively small, some relatively small revisions, um, including some things like, um, like divorce, even in unbiblical situations, really is actually divorce. It really is a breaking of the covenant. Um, and um, some, a little bit, we thought, some better, better language about some of the practical nuances here, as well as, as, well as one other scenario that 1 Corinthians talks about that I'm going to get to in just a second. So we, we rewrote, we you know, tweaked this slightly. If you would, if you would like this, if you want to add that to your, your bedside table, um, we've got paper copies right out there at the information center, uh, as well as we'll be emailing members um, uh, an updated copy of this, since it's something you got at your uh, at your membership, um, because I, I mentioned there, there's one there's one other scenario here that that we had failed to include in the old statement uh, that is, that is here in First Corinthians seven. There's another marriage divorce scenario here that we need to unpack uh, because marriage involving a believer and an unbeliever can happen in two different ways. Right? You can, it can either be, you know, the primary one that Paul has in mind is an unbelieving couple and one spouse gets saved. But the other way that can happen is a couple in the church and one spouse abandons the faith. This, this can happen too. And in fact, that has been something that Paul has been developing in chapter 5 and chapter 6, that very issue of when a person in the church, because of their persistent refusal to repent of sin, should be reckoned as and treated as an unbeliever. That's what chapters 5 and 6 were about. And the term that we use for, for that to, to explain Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 and Matthew 18, the term that we use for that around here is church discipline. Church discipline, a process of pleading and exhorting and warning until at last the church has to pronounce in its, in its authority, 
this person must be removed from the community of God's people and reckoned as an unbeliever. What, thankfully, by God's grace, that's rare around here, but it is one of the, the most sober things that we have to do. And we, and we saw this back in chapter 5. Um, and so, when we get to 1 Corinthians 7, and Paul is talking about marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, even while the, the scenario he most has in mind is that you know, the pagan gets saved, he has just laid out the other reality in chapter 5 and 6. And so when we arrive in chapter 7, this is what we should be thinking of. We should be thinking of this church discipline scenario when we arrive at marriage between a believer and an unbeliever because this is what Paul has been talking about. And that means that there is another category of biblically permissible divorce, or at least another, a subset, at least, of this category. It's when one spouse is under the finality of the end result of church discipline. Now, that doesn't mean, just like in all the other situations, it doesn't mean divorce is required. Divorce is never required. Paul makes that clear even here. That even when, it's not even required when one spouse is an unbeliever. And it's not even required when one spouse commits adultery. God's heart is always towards restoration, but sometimes that can't happen. But this, but this nuance, this nuance is something that we think as your pastors is really important. It was important enough for us to revise our divorce and, and remarriage position. Because let me just give you briefly here one hypothetical scenario uh, that, this would, that this would address. Uh, at least I, I hope it is hypothetical here. If, if you're in the situation that I'm about to describe, please come and talk to one of your pastors. Think with me for a minute about the scenario of physical abuse in a marriage. Let, let, let's say a, a husband beating his wife. And that's a scenario that is tragically all too real. And, and also, tragically, this is an example of, remember how I said that, that Paul handles Jesus' words with a lot more care and precision than sometimes we do? This is an example, think of sometimes where the church has far too often not done that and has wielded Jesus' words so clumsily with such destructive effects that has said to innocent victims, there is no recourse for you, divorce is a sin, suck it up. But let's think through how 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7 apply here. A wife comes to a pastor and, and tells him what, what's happening. What do we do? First thing is, do you need to be physically removed from that situation? When Paul says a wife shouldn't separate from her husband, that, that's not what he's talking about. He's, he's talking about divorce. You need to be physically removed from that situation. Like, don't go back. Don't go back. You need, you need a place to stay. Because my job as a pastor, as your shepherd, is to protect you. Second, is this a situation that authorities need to be involved in? Possibly. Not always. Sometimes, yes. Um, there's a lot of variables here. But in 1 Corinthians 6, when, when, Paul says, when Paul says, don't bring lawsuits against one another, work it out in the church, Paul does not at all mean issues of criminality. Remember, that was a, a, a clarification that Pastor George brought when he preached that text. Because Romans 13 says that God has given authority to civil governments for that purpose. 
that we're under the authority of civil government to reward good and punish evil. And beating your wife is not just a wicked and grievous evil. It's against the law and you should go to jail. And so should the authorities be involved? Perhaps. But there is also, so that's, there, there, there's also an issue of authority. There's an issue of authority God has given to the government here, and there's an issue of a, a spiritual authority that God has given to the church. And beating your wife is a wickedness that is utterly incompatible with following Jesus. And husband, we will tell you that. And so in addition to whatever involvement from authorities may, might be necessary, whatever removing people from situation might be necessary, this is also 1 Corinthians 5. This is church discipline. This is being expelled from the community of God's people. And we will warn you, husband, the furious wrath of God burns against anyone who would dare to lay a hand on his beloved. Repent or perish. It's my job as a pastor to tell you that. Hear me if you're in that situation. Repent or perish. This is a church discipline issue. And so this is how that horrible situation would be applied in First Corinthians chapter 5 with church discipline and chapter 6 with issues of law and legality. And so when we come to chapter 7 and the issue of marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, having gone through that process of church discipline, what Paul says in chapter 7 applies here. That divorce isn't required, but it is permissible. So, you know, these are, these are hard things that, that Paul is laying out here. Because the reality of living in a broken world is that it's hard. There is hard stuff. And marriage is hard. And divorce is hard. Everything's hard. But there is hope of grace. And if, if I can have the, the worship team come up, I, I said we'd, we'd look quickly at the, these last couple verses and what, what does Paul mean here as the worship team comes up? There, there is a hope of grace here. Verse 14 Paul says this, this strange thing. He says, The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And he says in verse 16, How do you know, wife, whether or not you'll, you'll save your husband? Husband, do you know if you're going to save your wife? He doesn't. So con- the, the commentaries are all split on. What, what exactly is he talking about here? Um, they go different directions. One thing I know he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean that, that somehow um, an unbelieving spouse or unbelieving kids get to hitch their wagon to your salvation and like, because you're saved, they're saved. It doesn't work that way. The only, the, the only one that we get, the only coattails we get to ride to, to glory are Jesus's. Uh, you don't get to bring along your family. What it does mean though is that God in his grace can save. And God in his grace can restore. And there is no situation 
There is no circumstance beyond the reach of his grace, beyond the reach of his goodness. There is no broken marriage that he can't put back together. He doesn't always, but there's no situation that he can't fix what is broken. And there is no person, there is no victim, there is no victimizer that the grace of God cannot reach and the blood of Jesus cannot cleanse and the Holy Spirit cannot hold infallibly. Jesus saves and Jesus saves marriages and Jesus saves kids and Jesus saves in broken homes because his grace is enough, his grace is stronger, his love is deeper. William, let me just re- read this, and then we'll, we'll, we'll sing. Uh, Willie, William Barclay, in his commentary on Corinthians, he, he writes this. Of like, how, how does this work? What, what is he talking about a, you know, with unbelieving spouse and kids? He says, he says this, in a partnership between a believer and an unbeliever, it's not so much that the believer is brought into contact with the realm of sin as that the unbeliever is brought into contact with the realm of grace. Grace has broken into your marriage. There's an infection about Christianity which involves all who come into contact with it because grace is stronger than sin. God's love is bigger than your brokenness, bigger than the mess you've made. So what we're going to do now is we're going to sing about that love, that love that has conquered our sin, that love that has made wretches into his treasure. And then we're going to celebrate. We're going to keep celebrating. We're going to celebrate with communion. So let's stand, and we're going to sing. And if, if you didn't get communion elements when, when you came in, they're, they're in the baskets back, at the, uh, back there. You can run back at them, and I'll be back in just a minute for us to celebrate this grace together. Let's sing.